0: Welcome to 96 Careers, a podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg Lynn,
1: And I'm Patrick Rappole.
0: This is episode nine. We'll be talking about Addicted to Fresno, a 2015 comedy directed by Jamie Babbitt and written by Carrie Dornetto. Jamie Babbitt, notable lesbian filmmaker, mm-hmm. uh, probably most famous for, but I'm a cheerleader.
1: Cult and, queer film in a time where not a lot of, even in the independent space, yeah. not a lot of queer films were being made.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that is definitely a, land, a landmark film for people of a certain age, that being us, like el- elder millennials. And then uh, Carrie Jornetto is actually her her partner, who's mostly written for uh, comedic TV shows like South Park, Portlandia, Arrested Development, and Community. Mm-hmm. Um, Had you seen this movie before?
1: So, having seen, uh, but I'm a cheerleader, I'd also seen Itty Bitty Titty Committee, which Mm -hmm. is her like radical feminist activist, I guess comedy would be the word. (laughs) Uh, And I'd also seen The Quiet. Um, Jamie Babbitt was one of those names that would pop up and I would be like oh I guess I should watch a Jamie Babbitt movie I didn't actually like any Jamie Babbitt movies and I and I because she's and because of identity politics I'd be like feel guilty about like oh I can't not like the movie by the lesbian who made but I'm a cheerleader mm-hmm. um, but I frequently was just like not into her stuff so I had seen most of the films that she had worked on up to a point but I did not. Uh, feel obliged to, like, keep going or whatever. So Addicted mm-hmm. to Fresno came out in, like, 2015 after all of that and mm-hmm. uh, just did not uh, and hit my radar, really.
0: I had seen But I'm a Cheerleader, um, which I'm a fan of. Right. It's got that it's, – it's very campy and stylized and over-the-top, which is something that I like in my humor – and it's got a great cast. It's, it's very, you know, adorable. It's adorable. It's, it's, it's the cutest movie ever. It's got a great soundtrack, too. And uh, I hadn't seen any other Jamie Babbitt movies. Um, I think I saw a couple scenes of Itty Bitty Titty Committee when you were watching it. And it didn't really uh, hit me in the same way as, uh, as But I'm a Cheerleader. Um, so this is only really my, my second uh, sitting down watching a, a Jamie Babbitt film. Mm-hmm. For
1: me, but this was uh this is also the second Judy Greer leading role that yes. we've talked about on this podcast. Yes. and so even though I was not a Jamie Babbitt fan, I was excited to tackle this movie. Because I knew we were going to be watching something that wasn't just Judy Greer on screen for 45 seconds, a la uh, Lolly Love, or Judy Greer miscast as a demure kitty, (laughs) a la The Cat Returns. Yeah, yeah. This is going to be the rare Judy Greer performance where she's in most of the movie.
0: Yeah, and also sharing... That status with Natasha Leone who, who is delightful. Yes,
1: I, I would say almost on that Judy Greer level of just like when you see Natasha Lyonne is in something, you go, ah, Natasha Leone. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. So I'll give a a quick summary of Addicted to Fresno for folks. Shannon is a sex addict who is fired from her job as a teacher after she's caught by her minor students having sex on school grounds. Now a registered sex offender, she is back in her hometown of Fresno and working as a hotel maid with her sister Martha. A hookup with a sleazy hotel guest goes pear-shaped and Shannon accidentally kills him. Shannon and Martha go through a series of wild schemes to hide the body, putting a strain on their relationship, their feelings about their hometown of Fresno, and Shannon's recovery. So Patrick, what did you think about Addicted to Fresno? I was
1: really surprised. I was really into it. I really enjoyed yeah. it quite a bit. Yeah. It was it's again, not a Jamie Babbitt person. I there was a, there's a thing about her movies that it always feels like um, like Disney Channel or something. There's just something about it that feels watered down. Like, but I'm a cheerleader is like, what if someone tried to make a John Waters movie for the Disney Channel? Or like (laughs) Itty Bitty Titty Committee feels like, what if someone tried to make like a political activist movie, but for the Disney Channel? Mm -hmm. Um, The Quiet feels more like a Lifetime original movie, but still the same like kind of watered down vibe where it's just, she never quite gets there Mm -hmm. for me. So this, I was really looking at this being like, oh God, this is going to be, sort of like a watered down like indie comedy thing it turned out to be very very funny and i honestly like it's it's not necessarily a compliment to jamie babbitt to say like this is also the movie where her work that i've seen of hers where her input feels the most anonymous like this just feels like a tv show (laughs) this doesn't have a lot of like you know you watch but i'm a cheerleader and there's all these like little tim burtony kind of things about the production design Mm -hmm. and about the music and the way the world looks and everything. Yeah.
0: it, It definitely feels like it is taking place in a, in a heightened reality. Um, not so much addicted to Fresno, which it's a lot more grounded. Um, although it does kind of feel like it is hearkening to, um, a ninety sensibility of indie film where it's like a pretty it's it's middle America, but it's being pretty specific about where it is. Um, people who are frustrated with their hometown, um, s- siblings who have a prickly relationship, and of course, like a, like a caper that kind of you know goes off the rails.
1: It's it's definitely the sort of thing you would have seen in Sundance at Sun at the Sundance Film Festival a lot in the '90s and the early aughts and stuff. It also uh, has a lot of Cohen Brothers to it, yeah. where it's like. Two idiots get uh, in over their heads with a crime, and then just things snowball from there as they try to deal with the problem.
0: Yeah, it reminded me a bit of like Happy Texas.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a Happy Texas vibe. There is uh, there's a Harold Ramis movie from like 2005 called The Iced Harvest that is uh, similar to this, where it's like how do you deal with a dead body in mm-hmm. the middle mm-hmm. of this uh, small town where everyone knows your shit? Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Even though it wasn't, like, it didn't have a lot of personality, it didn't have, like, a lot of identity the way that a But I'm a Cheerleader did, Mm -hmm. it was just, like, a very efficient, uh, like, it is just about the performances and the jokes, and the performances are all good, and the jokes, like, the writing is actually very sharp. Um, I had not seen any other movies uh, that had been written by Carrie Dornetto.
0: I don't know that she's written any other movies.
1: Um, But you get like when you when you look up her TV credits and you see Community and you see Arrested Development and you see South Park, you're like, yes, this is all there.
0: Yeah, I I believe she won an Emmy for Portlandia for her writing on Portlandia Portlandia
1: is another one. Um, So the thing that actually surprised me is that early on, you understand uh, that, yes, this is going to be a dirty comedy where there's just a lot of like uh, dirty jokes and it's just like very aggressive bad taste humor and you know Judy Greer's character specifically is just constantly saying, you know, sexually inappropriate things or whatever mm-hmm. at you know in her place of business or whatever. Yeah. Um the thoroughness with which the characters' relationship mm-hmm. is actually written, and how that evolves, and the backstory, and like how they deal with each other, and the things they don't say, and all that—that that was the stuff that actually really surprised me. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: they do—they do have a, a more complicated relationship than you would expect for this kind of movie, and it is um, something that is. Uh, that they take the time to look at directly especially towards the end of the movie after things like kind of have gone off the rails um you know they, they do take the time to kind of look at their dynamic and it's it's not as simple as uh you know martha natasha leone is the goody two shoes and uh and judy greer playing shannon is the fuck up it's, it's not that simple um which was uh surprising, especially considering the beginning of the movie where they're very diametrically opposed. I think it's interesting that they're playing against type. Too. Yes, that surprised um, me as well. Judy Greer's uh Shannon is like is very salty, very cynical, very defensive, and Natasha Lyonne is is more sweet and gullible, um, the, I, optimistic.
1: I feel like it is only Jamie Babbitt who sees this in Natasha Lyonne. Everyone else cast Natasha Lyonne as like world weary cynic who mm-hmm. has just like a cigarette dangling like, dangling out of her mouth and mm-hmm. who has seen it all before and knows mm-hmm. all the answers to everything. Mm-hmm. Like, even in 1999, if you watch, like, American Pie, the, mm-hmm. the character Natasha Leone plays in that movie, it's just, she's just the one everyone goes to for sex advice because she just seems to have an aura of, like, yeah, yeah, of course, here's what you do if you want to have an <laughs> orgasm while the guy's going down on you. Like, like, so, it it's just not how people cast Natasha Lyonne generally. Right. Um, but in, but I'm a cheerleader and this, she is just so bubbly and sweet and like happy go lucky and enthusiastic. And she's employee of the month at this yeah. hotel she works yeah. at and everything. She's, and it's
0: important to her too. yeah She wants like that status means something to her and she wants to keep it.
1: She goes, I got my own home. That's my America dream. <laughs> like she's, yeah. she, she seems somewhat, uh, content living mm-hmm. in Fresno, which is, I've never been to Fresno. It is depicted. Uh, by everyone who talks about it as just this like absolute nothing shithole where nothing happens. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's the way that it's constantly spoken about in the movie. Um, But yeah, and then Judy Greer's character is the one who's constantly smoking, has a foul mouth, just glaring at everyone, has a sarcastic comeback to everything that everyone says to her. Yeah.
1: no pleasure in anything she does no. she she just looks for the worst part like the worst angle of every situation she's in mm-hmm.
0: in the last episode we were talking about how in uh in lolly love she's only in the movie for such a brief time but she does bring this sort of um crassness to her role and um yeah yeah just lack of moral fiber but really like relishing in it and and it was interesting to um, watch these movies, uh, back to back, um, focusing on, on her and kind of, you know, see like, like little hints of that and then have it really open up here where it's not just about like, like, you know, satire of, uh, of people who live in Los Angeles. And it's really about someone who is, uh, you know, struggling with sex addiction and, uh, who's, um, Whose struggles have have led her to like a really difficult place in her life, and is just giver of zero fucks about anyone or anything.
1: Like it, the only the only joy she seems to get at all is like what, the moment where the woman who works at the front desk who takes the time to like run her down and be like, "Oh, you don't remember me from high school? Um, I don't oh shoot. I don't have this actor's name in front of me, but she is one of the many people in this movie." Uh, who? Oh, Jessica St. Clair. Yeah. Uh, who plays the woman who works the front desk? The, the The real strength of this movie is that like every ten minutes there's a new hilarious supporting character. Yeah, a l-
0: lot of good bit parts. Just
1: like a bit part will just pop up and you'll be like, oh, it's and like in a normal movie that's you saying, oh, it's Judy Greer, but instead mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it's Jessica St. Clair. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's Aubrey Plaza. Oh, it's Kumail Nanjiani. Oh, it's John Daly. You know, yeah. it's like all of these people just keep popping up. Jessica St. Clair is very funny. She goes, oh. Oh, you know, don't remember you from high school or whatever. And she like, uh, there's a moment where Judy Greer is basically trying to like have the conversation over. And she's like, oh, you mean high school? Okay, yeah, I remember you. She clearly doesn't remember her, mm-hmm. but she just wants it to be over. And they go into the elevator. And then as the elevator doors close, she reaches to open the doors again to say... Oh, I blew your boyfriend. Yeah. And I remember what his jizz tasted <laughs> like. <laughs> I blew your boyfriend on uh, at prom. Yeah. And like so it's like that's the only thing that she gets out of it like yeah, that's the only pleasure she gets is that yeah, the fact that she gives so fuck she goes so few fucks it gives her a certain power over everyone else.
0: Not the character that I was expecting to see. Uh, Judy Greer play, but she's completely able to, uh, to navigate it when she's in fair that is a bit more like nasty. Uh, she does tend to be the one who is just sort of floating on this like sea of cluelessness or 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 just sort of off in her own little world and, and it's, it's not that she's like she's never quite the innocent one she's never quite better than anybody else but she's just sort of the the wild card who's never quite on the same page as everyone else right um but I mean in in this she is um, you know very much uh you know seeing what everyone is up to you know she's uh she's scheming she's um, she's very critical of the people around her um, which is which is a, a very different dynamic than we're used to seeing
1: it's it's almost like the privilege of being the bit part mm-hmm. is that you can come in and be zany yeah and know that nothing emotional like no nothing about the plot of the movie is dependent upon like anything that your character does necessarily yeah. like the emotional reality of your care. Like, uh, uh, for example, Fred Armisen is like full blown Portlandia, wacky oh, yeah. Fred classic, Armisen, where it's like Fred Armisen he's, just, he's constantly saying these non sequiturs that yeah. are just not grounded in anything. And that's fine because he, it doesn't matter. Um, like he has that privilege of just being like zany Fred Arvison where yeah. when they, when they have the dead body and they bring it to him, they, he, it just, the scene starts with him going, it's a Dane. And it's like, Oh, you said it's a great one. <laughs> and like writing. <laughs> yeah, that
0: out, Cause he, he, uh, he owns the, the pet cemetery and they're trying to dispose of this body. But right. yeah. Oh, yeah. but like he just, he
1: just has like a lot of like, okay, that was improvised, yeah. uh, sort yeah. of goofy lines or whatever. Yeah. But because Judy Greer actually had is like the emotional fulcrum of this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, she does it more justice. It's like one of those things where we don't get to see a lot, especially when it's a bit part, but especially you don't get these kinds of foul-mouthed comedies also caring about the characters at all. Yeah. And so the fact that... Uh, like, she just seems to be miserable all the time. She, is not It's not just like she thought that would be the funniest way to play those scenes. Mm-hmm. It's that that's doing justice to the character and it allows the later scenes to work at all. Yeah, it's because yeah, yeah. You, it, it, there's an emotional consistency to it.
0: As funny as she gets to be, you, you do get to see moments where shannon is alone and regrets her choices and is completely humiliated where um she's a she's a registered sex offender i feel like that is focused on kind of heavily in act one and maybe forgotten about a little bit especially because she goes to a bar mitzvah (laughs) later in the movie but you know it, it is it is someone who i mean her character is a sex offender because she was having sex with another adult but minors saw them because they were they were having sex on the school grounds. Where you she get the feel. You teacher. get the feeling
1: that the, that the movie does not believe that's like a real sex offender. They like they yeah. sort of consider it like what it is. It's a plot point for why she can't go to the police because and why they wouldn't believe her. Right when right. she ends up killing the guy that she was having sex with. And, yeah,
0: and basically why why she has to work as a made in a hotel with her sister because she can't be near children. Well,
1: that's part of it. The other part of it is thankfully covered in an amazing bit of dialogue uh, that falls into a thing that we love to point out, which is very awkward... Oh
0: uh, yes, awkward expositions featuring another cameo, uh Ron Livingston playing playing a pretty typical Ron Livingston role. He, he, I, I feel, feel like he's
1: the only like ac- like well-known actor who pops up and doesn't really make more of his role than necessary. He's yeah. just kind of there.
0: Yeah, he he's just like he's just like the like clueless white collar guy. Um he is uh early in the film, uh she is sexting with this guy and she goes over to his house and shows up in his backyard unannounced and it's Ron Livingston comes out and they start dirty talking plot exposition to each other
1: and that plot exposition is uh he's like oh I can't do it right now my, my wife is gonna be home and she goes I stayed in that hotel room for two weeks so my sister wouldn't know I got kicked out of rehab for you and then he says to her yeah I'm the one who forged the release papers so the court wouldn't be all over your ass. And then she replies, it was the least you could do. I'm pretty sure therapists aren't supposed to fuck their patients, which is like explicitly in the dialogue they're saying is the acknowledgement that both of them have all of this information already. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah. And it's
1: like the classic, like why are these characters saying this out loud to each other?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, the, the way that they play it is like, oh, this is this is so naughty. This is like the taboo thing that, that's getting us all worked up. But it's like... This is very strange that you would just be saying all of this in this level of detail to each other. It's
1: just it's just like, it, it is just, we need to get it out. Yeah, yeah, how, we, yeah how else would they? Let's not yeah. waste a lot of time here. Yeah. Um. We got to keep things moving. I mean, like, the pace of this movie is its strength. Mm-hmm. Like, that's part of why they can have a new cameo bit part every 10 minutes is yeah. because it's just moves really, really quickly. So you forgive it, but uh, I did want to point that out because that is something that we're always <laughs> looking for is characters uh, just blatantly stating their relationships to each other, to each other. So there is a sense of integrity when it comes to Judy Greer's character okay. and sort of what she's been through and what she, you know, sort of her past and how how much she hates her current situation. Mm-hmm. There is also a sense of... Uh, integrity when it comes to Natasha Leone's character in terms of like there is a simmering passive-aggressive resentment that she has towards Judy Greer's character that she is just like she's very friendly and she's very enthusiastic and she's trying to get her to you know come out of her shell and be like it's okay let's move on let's all everything can be okay but it's very clear that she is like trying to force this to happen even though she's really fucking pissed about the situation or whatever.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There is a lot of simmering resentment where, um, you know, their sisters and we've, we learned that, uh, Natasha Leon's character has cared for both of their parents who are deceased. Uh, their mother had cancer and their father, uh, was an alcoholic, which led to his death. Um, you know, and, uh, uh, Judy Greer, not, uh, not having hit her rock bottom yet, not getting the support that she needed, um, was not able to be present to uh, help.
1: And, and also, just it's generally implied she's a selfish person.
0: Yeah, she she is not the good sister. If you want to be the, the implication about is it.
1: pretty strong that it's just like she would hear because their mom died of cancer. Yeah. And then their and then when their dad was struggling after their mom's death, she would hear of that situation. And go, Ugh, I don't want any part of that, and yeah. like not be there. So like there's this there's this interesting for a movie that is just like full of dirty jokes and just like dick jokes and uh, sort of gross out humor mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, there is a interesting integrity when it comes to the characters. But there is this thing with Jamie Babbitt mm-hmm. across most of her movies. Um, we We watched her most recent feature film, uh, the Stand-In, yeah. which is on Netflix.
0: Yeah, that's like all about Eve on the Disney Channel. It's
1: like all about Eve on the Disney Channel, or it's like a uh, single white female meets Dave or something. like. <laughs> um, but there's this thing across all of her movies, even the, even the ones that we like, uh, like uh, But I'm a Cheerleader or whatever, where I think tonally she is more ambitious than she is capable of. Okay. And there is a sense of just like disconnect between... The, com- the comedy and the characters and when it tries to get dramatic, you're like, isn't this the movie that was just being like super campy and ridiculous and silly and now all of a sudden we're trying to take this seriously?
0: Yeah, that, that's... I, I would say that, that that's true about uh, But I'm a Cheerleader. My, my one big critique of that movie is that there is a lot of tonal inconsistency where it is it is goofy and campy and irreverent until you get to the romance between clea duvall and natasha Leone, which is just treated as the most like tender beautiful um you know you know uh Really uh, sincere uh, guitar music playing as they have like you know these like soft focus close ups of them kissing, Uh, and then and then it goes back to you know um, RuPaul running around in short shorts and their and dick jokes and you know
1: right Um, the Quiet is a movie that tries to be like a sort of domestic thriller in in the realm of a blue velvet or something where it's like the sick underbelly of the suburbs and Mm -hmm. but it also tries to be like slightly campy and satirical like a Gregoraki movie and that's a movie that because it doesn't hit either of those marks particularly well it's just like really dreary and unpleasant the whole way through Mm -hmm. because the stuff that's supposed to be so outlandish and ridiculous that it's over the top and campy Mm -hmm. just ends up being really unpleasant and horrible mm-hmm. um the stand-in is a movie that just like doesn't quite work because at a certain point it's this very goofy comedy and then at a certain point it's this weird uh, psychological thriller
0: yeah yeah that movie didn't work for a lot of reasons
1: this is a movie that in its first half or so when it's being super ridiculous somewhere in between uh, like South Park and the Coen Brothers in terms of like oh god we have this dead body we got to take care of yeah. what are we going to do everything spiraling yeah. out of control like somewhere in be- somewhere in between those two things it's still it still does a lot of justice to the characters the when this movie then turns into the the sort of the final act where mm-hmm. the where the sisters finally break up Uh, that's where it starts. You get to see that Jamie Babbitt like tonal inconsistency again. And it just does not work for me at all. Uh, I really did not like the ending of this movie. Most of, I should say, uh, the ending of this movie.
0: The way that it resolves in terms of the choices that the characters make that I liked. But I will agree that like tonally it does get a bit too feel good, especially compared to the be- to the beginning of the movie where it's just it's just crass humor and yeah, it it doesn't end up in a in a in a place that feels uh balanced.
1: Right. I mean even even as late as that like bar mitzvah, it's just so silly and ridiculous, yeah. like the like the rap that the little kid does and the <laughs>
0: right. Like everything. <laughs> so my, my favorite part of this movie uh, is after they try to convince Fred Armisen and his wife to cremate his John rockabilly, Daly. His rockabilly yeah. babe wife. Yeah, his <laughs> rockabilly babe wife. With the nautical star tattoos yeah, on, her, on yeah, her clavicles. Yeah, who like, also hates Fresno. That's she, one of the greatest uh, fucking cool. character
1: details. Yeah. It's just his wife pops up and she has nautical star tattoos on her clavicles. And you're like, oh, there's a whole story here. And yeah. later he's like, yeah. later when they get him money, but it's not the amount of money that she wants, he's like, I'll sell the Thunderbird. And you're <laughs>
0: like, oh my God, they're rockabilly <laughs> pet cemetery owners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, who are going to move to Detroit <laughs> probably cuz they want to be like the white stripes or something. Yeah. Um <laughs> Um, so anyway, yeah. So anyway, so so the so the rockabilly pet cemetery owners are um, are blackmailing them. Uh, so um, so a good chunk of the of the middle portion of the film is uh, how are we going to get twenty five grand in three days to to pay off our blackmailers? And one of the capers that they attempt is uh, robbing a, a sex toy outlet which is being staffed by clea duval another great um, another
1: great cameo there
0: who seems to be kind of getting off on it but that's besides the point so um so they 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 rob uh the sex toy shop and then it cuts to them pushing a cart filled with jiggling purple dildos mm-hmm. and they t- <laughs> which is just the best visual in the whole movie and then there's a whole montage of them going back to the hotel where there is a lesbian softball league get together and selling the dildos at this event but specifically sent the Slater-Kinney is it, oh is it sl- Slater-Kinney I, 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 it's, it's either Slater-Kinney or one of their side projects the, it sounds like Corin Tucker
1: that's amazing <laughs> I uh, um, the, the thing that cracked me up about this sequence where they're selling it is that it turns into Every Seth Rogen movie has a party montage yes. where it's just like they do drugs and then it just becomes a crazy like, whoa, we're all doing drugs yeah. set to a high impact you know yeah. hip hop song or yeah. whatever. And it's just it just feels like some studio. It's like some producers saw the success of Seth Rogen and said, okay, what a, com- the f- it's like what genre, like essential genre rules. A comedy is a movie that makes people feel good. Like when they watch people do drugs and <laughs> exciting music is playing. And so it just became a rule at a certain, I like, it's like. M- but this is like lesbians playing with dildos. <laughs> right, right. Well, it's like at a certain point, major Hollywood comedies didn't exist anymore. But like in the lat, in the waning years, which yeah. this is in, I want to say like 2017. Is where you start to be like, hey, no one's really making Hollywood mainstream yeah. comedies anymore. Yeah. Uh, like, it just became a rule that all of these fucking movies had to have a high impact uh, music set montage of people partying yeah. and drinking and stuff. Yeah. and the and the dildo montage is <laughs> is, is that.
0: Yeah, it, it it does the thing where um where instead of short clips, it's like uh it's like just photos basically, yeah. as though someone had taken photos and was flipping through their Instagram carousel. Look at the crazy weekend I had. Uh, my favorite photo is that uh there's a microphone stand and someone stuck a dildo in <laughs> instead of
1: the microphone. Yeah.
0: They're all purple. They're all gigantic. Now, it's like, <laughs> the, I, I, did, I, I I,
1: am sitting here, and I'm being like, these lesbians have their own sex toys. They don't need these sex toys. They don't,
0: it's not. Well, well to be fair, they do only make $400. Yes, it's, so- and
1: afterwards, they do say, oh, we didn't make nearly as much money yeah. as we thought. The, that's the funny thing about this movie is that it slides into a, it slides into like a 15-minute stretch where they do like, five ways to get rich quick and none yeah, of them work yeah. immediately well where it's like let's rob a sex shop it's like nah that didn't work all right let's sell the dildos we got at the sex shop nah that didn't work all right let's rob a bar mitzvah uh that kind of didn't work like um they're just bad criminals
0: yeah, um yeah
1: and i think that's part of why the movie is paced so well is it never settles into and here's the thing the movie's about which mm-hmm. is like they owe fifteen thousand dollars, so it becomes a movie about them selling drugs, or it becomes a movie about this. It just keeps changing what it's about, um, and the the consistent thing is the characters. Um, I. But it's also just like yes, this is a woman. This is a movie written by a gay woman and directed by her wife. Yeah. And like this movie feels like it could be any number of Sundance indie comedies uh, of its era or whatever. The music is all like xylophones and marimbas in a way that it was just like, Oh yeah, that's right. 2015. I forgot about the Obama administration and how every fucking indie comedy had to have fucking marimbas because Barack Obama was president and the world. Yeah. Because, because the world was sunny and optimistic. So everything just had to be twee. That's, Mm -hmm. that's, I always associate that like 2008, 2012, especially period Mm -hmm. of culture with just like white people losing their minds and they're all making like folk music where everybody stomps their feet and shouts, Hey, like like, that to me is just like the white race collectively coming together and say, we did it. Black man's president. Racism solved. (laughs) Huh. So like whenever I hear the fuck, and, and granted it's more it's probably less like uh, the Lumineers and more like Arrested Development or something. Sure. But whenever I hear hear the ukuleles and the marimbas and the xylophones uh-huh. and that shit, remember he, that? Oh, like, oh we, when we were watching all those rom coms uh, for The Wedding Planner, and we watched. Uh, what was the uh, Daniel Radcliffe one? What if is yeah, that movie? What if? what if is one of those movies yeah. where it's just like nonstop twee bullshit, and it's yeah. like, and it's like, why? Because Barack Obama was president and white people had no worries.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Obama.
1: <laughs> so anyway. Um, what was I saying? I guess I guess I do like that this movie, despite feeling so of its era, does feel at least like it has a point, a, a specific point of view from mm-hmm. like, this is a queer film, even though yeah. it's not, you know, it's two leads and one of them is a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not... You know, it's it's not itty bitty titty committee or uh, but I'm a cheerleader where it's like really deep in that world and showing you aspects of the queer feminist whatever world that you right. wouldn't necessarily know about. Right. But like it is at least <laughs> it it is just a movie that Seth Rogen would not make.
0: The one part where it does kind of get into aspects of. Uh, Queer life is that Natasha Leone uh, tried to date a straight woman who went back to dating guys and is not quite over her, uh, which is a pretty common queer experience. Well, it's, it's funny. I always
1: associate that story specifically with like there's there's like levels of queer fiction right in the mainstream world where it's like there's the coming out story and the coming out story is like the most relatable story for straight people because they're not threatened by an actual queer community right like a coming out story it's essentially about someone who feels isolated Mm -hmm. and therefore it like makes sense in the straight mind of like oh yes dear simon you know like this is a kid this is a kid who's the only gay guy in his class he's not that's not what that movie's about but anyway like he feels like he's the only gay guy Mm -hmm. and so like because he is an anomaly a straight person can watch that movie and go, yes, I recognize queer people as an anomaly or whatever. When you get it to a queer movie that it's like all about queer culture and everyone in it is queer and everything. Uh That's when it starts to be alienating for mainstream audiences or whatever. And so like the lesbian who's in love with a straight girl or the gay guy who's in love with a straight guy or whatever. That's like one of those stories that I always associate with that. Like that, like a little bit above that tier of like, this is a very, acceptable thing that a straight person could see and and understand because it doesn't deal with any of the specifics about queer culture. It specifically right. is about a character who's alienated from their queer culture. That said, the thing I love about that narrative in this movie is that Natasha Leone is not in love with this woman because... Of some sort of like self-loathing, like she can't be associated with other lesbians or right, whatever. Right. Natasha Leon's in love with this woman because she, like Judy Greer, is totally fucked up by her parents mm. and just is like very into the idea of an unattainable relationship that can have no emotional fulfillment and yeah. therefore has no stakes on her.
0: And also feels like she has to fix this person. Right. The thing that I really like about this movie is that um you have you have Judy Greer who is uh, you know, her character is a sex addict. Um, it's kind of a thorny topic to deal with. Um, I mean, mental, mental health professionals are still, still kind of debating, um, you know, is sex addiction a real addiction? So there's, there's a lot of, uh, difficulty to that term, but She's not the only addict in this movie. Most of the characters in this movie have some, like some addiction that they're struggling with, on in one way or another. Where it's it's like uh, um, where like Natasha Leone is is kind of struggling with her her kind of codependent relationship with her sister and and her need to take care of people and kind of have that dynamic. Um, you know uh we have m- malcolm barrett uh who plays their their coworker uh who who mentions that um that natasha Lyonne helped him get to like a healthier place with cannabis um you know so him kind of you know coming off of that um you know john daly's character al- m- might also be a sex addict because you find out he has a very problematic relationship with the, uh, um con- you know constantly being at this hotel with sex workers there's this
1: implication that he has like achieve the greatest thing he will ever achieve. He he's a he's an Olympian. Yeah, yeah,
0: bronze medal. He gets a bronze medal for the hammer throw. Uh
1: Judy Greer Judy Greer uh or, uh Natasha is like, "You killed an Olympian." Yeah. And then Judy Greer goes, "Only if you consider hammer throw a sport, which yeah. <laughs> we get a if fucking incredible uh uh line delivery there. But like you get the idea that like he is not like there's some very rough family situation that he is fleeing from and that he like has fallen from glory and that he like feels that he can't achieve. I mean, you don't really get any of his inner life. This is all assumed after you meet his family and his parents and you learn these things about him. Um, But yeah, like uh, there's uh, I I like, yeah, uh, Judy Greer's sex addiction is very specifically discussed in terms of it's not just, like, what's the wackiest... What's, like, a wacky flaw that we could give a character that would be fodder for a lot of yeah. humor? Like, it's very specifically discussed in terms of, like, I don't get pleasure from sex, and when yeah. I do meet a guy who's good for me, that's when I don't like him. Yeah. And, like, when the therapist who I was fucking in in rehab, when he, like, breaks up with his wife to be with me, that's when I lose interest in him. Yeah. Um, so all of that, like, I think all that character stuff really works. Uh, mm-hmm. It's, like, a little... Uh, I, I, there's, there is a point where I'm just like, Aubrey Plaza, you got, like, you are a Krav Maga babe with like amazing, like there's a moment where, uh. But
0: she knows it too, she owns it, she's like, right, she's well, like I'm really cool, you know, Natasha Lyonne. Date you, you someone keep, else But waf- well, she says that, she, she you <laughs> know, Natasha she gives her, she gives her her chances, and Natasha Lyonne keeps waffling, she says, you know what, I'm really cool and I don't have time for this and she leaves her.
1: There's a, there's, yeah, I, I guess that moment comes like a scene later that I would have thought for, uh, already, but at, at any rate, yes, mm-hmm. there, there is a, there is a, uh, attention to detail given yeah. with, the, with these characters yeah. and how they relate to each other. And yeah. there's even a really, like a really nice moment, like despite the fact that Judy Greer is just so acerbic throughout this whole movie and just mm-hmm. so nasty and just constantly saying heinous shit, <laughs> like there is just like one little moment before the bar mitzvah where, She's like trying to fix Natasha Leone's very frizzy hair. Yeah. They oh, they yeah. have the little like in joke about cousin it where Natasha Leone combs her hair in front of her head and puts the sunglasses on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's and it's just like this very sweet thing. They have a couple moments in the movie where they just get into these like really childish slap fights that, that's so good. You can tell that they had so much fun with, with each a, other. And it was
1: like it was a very uh um it was very edifying for me because I feel like on this very podcast we're constantly talking about how come we haven't got a movie with Park her Posey and Judy Greer. How come we haven't got a movie, Judy Greer and so-and-so like, yeah. like we constantly are coming up with these great team ups that it's just like mm-hmm. Judy Greer. We want a whole movie of that. And we got a whole movie of that. We, in yeah, absolutely. Fresno. absolutely.
0: They are, they, their chemistry is wonderful. They bounce off each other so well. Um, you know, I, I hope that they work together again in the future. Um, Cause it was really delightful to see um, these like two really solid character actresses work together um, and getting and right. Get a whole movie of it. Um, there's yeah. also
1: there's also a little bit of uh, slums of Beverly Hills to this movie. Oh, for sure. <laughs> like for when sure. they start fighting each other with the dildos. I was just thinking about the scene where they're tossing the dildo <laughs> back and forth, or was it a vibrator or whatever in slums of Beverly Hills, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. back and forth. That was a, and it's also that the whole movie takes place in hotel rooms too. So oh, that's true. That was that was just like a thing I that just kept popping up into my mind. But it is funny. It's just like Natasha Leone is so jaded in so many of the works that she is in, yeah. and it's just like in this one you get to see this. It is like the Judy Greer thing. Where it's like every once in a while we'll see a Judy Greer role that she come that is she's cast in a role you wouldn't necessarily expect of her mm-hmm. and she knocks it out of the park anyway. Mm-hmm. And this is I have not necessarily seen that with Natasha Lyonne before. I always feel like when I see Natasha Lyonne in a movie, it's a, a very Natasha Lyonne kind of role, except for "But I'm a Cheerleader," mm-hmm. um, which she does knock out of the park there. And she knocks, you know. And uh, I, I do I did enjoy seeing Natasha Lyonne in this uh, very different kind of performance. So
0: "Addicted to Fresno" is on to be and um, not to not to knock Natasha Lyonne because I think she is an absolute delight uh, but uh, I, I kind of let it just kind of you know do its do, let the algorithm do its thing after after Addicted to Fresno ended and then the next movie that started was called My Suicidal Sweetheart which was also a Natasha Lyonne vehicle it was her and uh, David Krumholtz, who's also one of my favorite character actors, um, it was horrible. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. She was, Is she the uh, eponymous suicidal sweetheart? I guess David Krumholtz is. <sighs> she is this, like, I guess you would call her a manic pixie dream girl. It's, it's so ableist. It's like...
1: What year did this come out?
0: Like 2005. Okay. And okay. It, and, it, and it's, uh, David Krumholtz is this like tortured, angsty young man who, who tries to commit suicide and, and, um, he ends up, uh, inpatient in a mental health hospital. And Natasha Leone is another patient at the hospital. And, uh, she is, uh, she's having a harder time than, than he is, but she's this kind of manic pixie dream girl almost where, where she's just sort of like out of it on her meds and, and not quite, not, not quite attuned to what's going on around her. And he just thinks that she's so beautiful and he falls in love with her and they get married. I don't know. I turned it off after like 20 minutes. <laughs> well, look, it was really gross. If it's to be, um,
1: then it was just as likely that the next thing they would have played is in memory of my father. Yeah, you know what it, I mean? Yeah, like yeah, you can't hold true. that against Natasha Tasha Leard. No,
0: No, 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 no. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's like, you know, when you're a working actor, you just kind of, you know, take the jobs right. that you need to take to, to pay the bills. Um, but it, and it was just weird to see her just play this character. Who's very like, like you know, quiet and and sleepy and kind of supposed to be like very angelic and kind of beautiful in this like creepy passive kind of way. I do She's never think of Natasha Lyot as passive. It's, yeah, it was it was <laughs> ugh, um, a, a misstep.
1: <laughs> now, if David Crumhol shows up in Poker Face, well, I'd watch that. Oh my
0: God, yeah. If David,
1: yeah. Cr- you know, if Judy Greer shows up in Poker Face, why not? Like you know. <laughs> Uh uh you know I I feel like Natasha Lyonne got to be in Russian Doll. I think they're doing another season of Russian Doll. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: yeah, they released the second season last year. Just haven't gotten around okay. to watching it. Okay. she
1: was in Orange is the New Black. Like yeah, she I feel, feel like Natasha Lyonne kind of I feel in, like
0: in Orange is the New Black,
1: culture uh has caught up to Natasha Lyonne yeah. in a way that you look at the late 90s and you just you look at that landscape of films and you go, yeah, there's not a place for someone as great as her like yeah. in her specific way. Yeah, You know, uh it's it's just one of those things judy greer uh because she could just slip into all of these different uh kind of bubbly extremely feminine uh Mm -hmm. sort of roles it was always just like yeah you can always slot in judy greer anywhere and she'll make the most of it even if she's not being subversive or whatever yeah but there's such a like a heavy masculine energy to natasha leone that it's just like totally unacceptable to uh Mainstream like film and television culture of right. the mid aughts and right. that sort of level stuff. And honestly, like movies like this is why I, at a certain point you told me, "Oh yeah, Natasha Leone, she's 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 straight," and I was scandalized. Yeah, I was, I was so oh, upset. I was,
0: I was. I was too. I mean, I mean, she she's definitely very accepting of her role as a queer icon. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I mean, maybe she was she friends was
1: with Doris sister. Wishman <laughs> yeah, for God's yeah. sakes, the um, director of Dildo Heaven.
0: I, I mean, I yeah, I. I'm pretty sure that I read a quote from her where she identified as straight. She and Fred Armison were uh were partners mm-hmm. for many years.
1: There's a lot of a lot of the people who pop up in this movie if you start like packing who else like oh yeah, Cléo Duvall. that makes sense because yeah. Jamie Babbitt and yeah. you're like, oh yeah, Fred Armisen. that makes sense because she wrote for Portlandia, yeah. you know, Arrested Development, this, that, yeah. you know, like uh it, you get the vibe that like the way a movie this low budget has the cast it does is just that it's like oh because everyone was just friendly and enthusiastic and willing to work for scale
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: Um. but uh, Natasha Lyonne still gay in my heart (laughs)
0: I think that, that she is accepting of that. You know, she's just like, well, I am who I am, but also I I love my my status as a queer icon. Right. It's just um, I, you
1: know what she did. She did. She had a smoky voice when she was a teenager. Yeah. Like you know, <laughs> that's just she. That's just how the dice were rolled. That has nothing to do with uh you know sexuality, sexuality yeah. or identity.
0: Yeah. I will say one of the things that uh sort of detracted from this movie for me was that some of the humor felt a bit too mean spirited. Yeah. Uh, then my personal preferences the scene where john daly dies which kind of sets off the the events of the rest of the movie is uh he's having sex with judy greer she um uh he's this he's this uh dude with a mullet and you know hi ladies blah blah blah. sexually Um, inappropriate yeah yeah sexually inappropriate um at the at the hotel specifically to spend time with sex workers and she just walks up to his door, knocks on it and says, you know, let's have sex and, and then they start having sex uh, and then Natasha Leone hears them and, and walks in on her and uh, Judy Greer claims that John, T- that John Daly is raping her uh, and then he, uh, he says some more inappropriate things and then uh, she like slaps him or punches him and then he falls down and dies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which happens? Which happens off, off screen? It's it's not the most graceful uh, scene of conflict I've ever I've ever come across I, in, in a film. It was a
1: hundred percent a budget thing in my mind. Yeah, it's just I, like, that, how do we stage this? What if we didn't?
0: That that, that tracks, but it's just very. Uh, it's like, oh, is he like one of those fainting goats? Like, what? <laughs> like, 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 what happened? You you just kind of hear like like slap. Thud, and then it's like oh no he's dead it's like oh, okay okay i guess we're rolling with even this.
1: his olympics coach told him boy you got a glass neck
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and i guess they're also saving on uh on makeup because it's not like you see you don't see like no they don't they hair, don't they don't show the nothing. close-up of his bruised neck or no, anything no, of him like he is just he, he's dead now
1: he's dead <laughs> she reaches for a pulse she says no pulse oh he's dead then okay yeah. Now, does it make sense that his body, they keep his body at the hotel with like... (laughs) <laughs> with like 8 ounces of ice on top of him and that and then and no one discovers this rotting corpse that's there for 4 days.
0: Yeah, yeah, they just kind of go out to the ice machine with the bucket every now and then and and pour ice on top of him, which is is a pretty funny Where everyone is having their
1: continental breakfast just like they yeah. they're, they're just they just have their little laundry basket with his naked dead body at the bottom of it.
0: It is it is a pretty good detail for a movie that's largely set at a, at a hotel, but uh yeah, I don't I don't know that they're quite uh following the, the the physics or the they're not quite following the the biology of uh human decomposition at least i don't I don't think maybe you know I'm-
1: it's well it's one of those things where it's like i don't care until the movie starts asking me to take it seriously yeah. and then i go are they really having this conversation while his body is, <laughs> is rotting in the basement and no one notices <laughs> like
0: yeah, you know, I've never seen Weekend at Bernie's, but maybe there's like some, you know, how how it's how sometimes there's uh, you know, every t- every time travel movie has its own rules. Maybe there's mm. like Weekend at Bernie rules for every movie where someone's got a, a dead body to to sneak around. That's
1: true. That's true. You know, he was he was a gross dude. He might have pickled himself. Just he by m- drinking so much, he might have pickled himself. He might have pickled yeah. himself in vodka. He's uh, he's uh, coded as Russian, I guess. <laughs> but they yeah, his,
0: yeah. It's it was the like, weird Molly Shannon
1: performance where she's like doing half of a Russian accent.
0: Yeah, she she John Daly's character is named Boris, and and uh, Molly Shannon is his sister, and and they have elderly parents, uh, who she's speaking to in a foreign language that we never know what it is that's
1: true that's true it's it sounds eastern european to my ears yeah. but it could be any number of languages
0: yeah yeah and, and who's to say if it's you know an actual i mean i mean we couldn't tell you know with our lack of linguistic knowledge right. if it's a actual language if it was just something that the that the actors made it's, up.
1: it's not a great scene but it does involve molly shannon in a terrible wig just saying guru for 15 seconds so yeah. they did enjoy her just say guru yeah. over and over yeah. again yeah. guru 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 like yeah. I don't know why it made me laugh a lot. Molly Shannon's very funny,
0: and Judy Greer trying to um, to do like charades of like what it, what a guru is to to try and uh, um, help translate it to people who don't speak English.
1: But yes, going back to your original point, uh, it, it, a lot of mean spirited rape jokes. Yeah, there's there's a part where that you can tell that it was just like. It's mean spirited, but then they had to pull their punches because they realized it was too mean. Which is that the uh, that their boss has Down syndrome, yeah. and it's like it's set up like it's going to be a joke. And there's there's all of these like dead airs where it's like there would be a laugh here if we made a joke about him, but instead we're just going to pause for three seconds and I guess let you
0: fill in a joke. Yeah, that I will I will say that um, that character does have a nice scene with Natasha Leon, Leon at the end where. Uh, you know, he's the one who uh, kind of you know says to her, you know, you have to, you have to get your life together. You know, you're comparing yourself to your sister, but, you know. Um, you know, look where you are, you know, you're, you're stuck too. you should really take a look at yourself. So, you know, he, he does end up being the one who's like, well, of all the characters in the film, I'm the one who has my life together. Like I'm the one who's gotten promoted at my job. I'm the one who just came back from a vacation to Dollywood. Uh, I'm the one who has a sexy girlfriend. I mean, I, mean, I, th- not, I think that's, I mean,
1: I, I, I like, so the, the actor's name is Edward Barbonell. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And, and he's not, he's not just some random dude that they pulled off the street. Like he's a professional. He's a, a
1: professional actor he's been in a bunch of movies and stuff i think that that is a loaded trope in itself which is like the person with the mental disability has a heart of gold and like all of the selfishness of modern society like is gone past him and he is the one who has the actual wisdom and could we only
0: i don't think he has a heart of gold i mean he's kind of like yelling at her um he does almost fire her so i don't i don't think he is as uh I, I, mean, I mean, I mean, yeah, he is playing into the trope of like, of like the the person with the disability who is like hardworking and has achieved. So he is kind of inspiration porn, I guess. Right. But
1: and uh, but I, it almost to me, it's like the trope is. This is the one character you wouldn't expect to have words of wisdom. Yeah. But guess what? In this movie, he does. Yeah. And like that, I've just seen that a lot in yeah. a way. Like, I've also, I'm also, I, I'm also a, a listener of the podcast Just King Things, where they talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. And guess what it pops up a lot in the books of Stephen King?
0: Oh, yeah. I Yeah. I don't think, I don't think he's as bad as like, as like a, a developmentally disabled character in a Stephen King novel is. That's just, I, I just, egregious. I just see, the, I just
1: see the through lines there. It's true. Sure, it's, it's, sure. it's not, I mean, like I said, like it's it's not in bad taste because they don't do it, but like the uh... there,
0: yeah, there's a random but in... scene where he just like walks into uh, one of the MC... empty, like, yeah, he's he's the he's the the supervisor of house. executive maid, yeah, the executive maid, and he walks into an empty hotel room and then he looks at his watch and says oh it's lunchtime and turns around and leaves and it has nothing to do with anything you think to yourself like oh no he's gonna bump into the two sisters with the dead body he doesn't like well i think i think
1: the implication is he's about to discover and then he changed and then he goes oh never mind it's lunchtime because he gets called up to that room to investigate where the guy died um so, I, but
0: I think he ends up in a different room. I think
1: it's staged poorly, but I think okay. that's supposed to be the it's room. I think the idea room. is he's supposed to find evidence, but oh uh, never mind, it's lunchtime. But then there's like there's also the scene where it's like, oh you're just lucky you got the job because he thinks sex offender is someone who fights sex crimes. Like there yeah. there's still jokes at like in yeah. a way that and just in general, I think the idea is if you have an atmosphere of mean spirited comedy. You create the anticipation yeah. of when the developmentally disabled person shows up on on screen. Yeah, there is the tension in the audience of oh, what joke are we gonna do? Yeah, and then when you don't say it, you're still like getting the laugh and the awkward tension from that audience. Like you're right. still like milking it and being exploitative in a way yeah, without yeah. without going all the way into something that's just totally unacceptable. And, you know, in 2015 or whatever. So it's, but like, it's so to me, like it, that all just contributes to the mean spirited atmosphere of the movie, mm-hmm. um, I, which is like, I, I like really dark comedy. I like comedy yeah. where people are horrible, like, I think one of the funniest movies I've ever seen is Killing of a Sacred Deer, the Yorgos Lanthimos movie, which oh, is just, like, one of the movie. bleakest That's, things yeah. ever. <laughs> like, so, like, it's, it's not necessarily that. It's that um, it's that you have to commit to that. Like, yeah. you have to say, this is the movie we're making. Yeah. And when you get to the scene where he, it, it feels like they're pulling the punches or whatever, or when you get to, like, the sort of gooey emotional uh, resolution of the movie at the mm-hmm. end that's when you start to go like really then what was all the shit about like her the a person who works the front desk is too stupid to know how to give a blow job or whatever like very weird like oh yeah just pretend it's full of yogurt like <laughs> very weird sequence <laughs> that also felt like a scene that they wrote it at a certain point and they were like this is too sexually graphic we can't actually have them simulating fellatio so we we walked up to that line i don't know um I will say, uh, as there, the movie opens with uh, Judy Greer sort of – it's basically a – I bet you're uh, Judy Greer in prison – She's in line, mm-hmm. you know, walk into the lunchroom or whatever. Mm-hmm. You just see her in line with a bunch of other prisoners. And it's her, and she turns back and she looks directly into the camera and she gives the camera a smile. And right. the implication to the audience at the beginning of the movie, not having any context for this, is like, she's like such a bad girl. Ain't I a stinker? You know, like, you know, right. I, I ended up in prison and I'm happy and I'm glad I was. And and But the voiceover
0: when- is something about like like your sister's your best friend, but She'll drag you down. Yeah. Something uh, like so that. There's
1: something cynical about it, and the fact that she like lean, looks back at the camera and smiles, it it creates this feeling of like, oh yeah, this is about a character who's just like really cynical and terrible mm-hmm. and doesn't care about how she hurts or whatever. I will say, even though I didn't really care for where the movie ended up in its sort of final 15, 20 minutes or whatever, uh-huh. That final moment where you actually get the context of her looking back and smiling, it kind of got to me. I, I, I found it very sweet and I, I, I found it yeah. very moving. Yeah. Um, I, I don't like the actual final line of the movie, which is like, P.S., I hate you, which means I love you like a sister. I yeah. think that was a corny line or whatever, but yeah. like the context of her looking back and seeing her. Sister walk away. Right. And, like, realizing that she finally did something unselfish for once in her life. Like, that was actually a little moving. Yeah. Granted, the guy, he's a creep. uh, And basically, the movie takes great pains to say, oh, yeah, like, everyone in his life is happy that he's dead now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Do do I believe... Do I believe that the prison system is some sort of like place where people can redeem themselves and like that is where justice is, is made it out. And like and there's nothing about the ending of this movie that says like the only way Judy Greer can proceed is if she serves hard time for the for the man's life that she took. Yeah. Like I, there's I don't know why she can't move on without going to prison. Prison's not where justice happens. Prison's no. where fucked up bullshit happens and, and people make money off of it.
0: My, my take on it is that she spends the movie not taking responsibility for what she does and blaming other people for her problems. Um, that's seen to seen as like the... One of the main symptoms of her addiction, of the struggle that she has, is that is that she doesn't... She has no accountability for what she does. And... That is her taking accountability. That is her um, owning up to the consequences of her actions um, and not letting her sister take the fall.
1: Was her sister going to take the fall? Because the guy's cremated and they're, and they're the only ones who know about it other than the people who, than the rockabilly Pet cemetery owners who fucked off to Detroit. So for, like for me, I think the movie is presenting it as like, well, this is just the penance she has to pay. And then on the other side of it, she'll be a better person, which is like, that's not what prison is.
0: When they're kind of wrapping things up, and they have a little their little funeral for John Daly's character uh, being buried in this pet cemetery, Natasha Lyonne is the one who's giving the eulogy, and she talks about how she's still you know frustrated because Judy Greer wasn't present at their father's funeral, and she still feels like like she's the one who has to take who has to take all the responsibility. Then Judy Greer gets. Triggered basically, and, and and goes off and has sex with Fred Armisen, and then disappoints Natasha Leone yet again. And they're they're still living in town, but they're not speaking to each other. So right. I think it's Judy Greer's way of trying to make amends and like take responsibility. Because like how how else would you take responsibility for that? And I I agree with you that the the outcomes that are meted through the prison industrial complex that is not justice that is punishment I I I don't think that that is a a way to reliably bring about justice or bring about healing like absolutely I totally agree with you there she comes into the film you know she she has had this run-in with the law where she's gotten fired uh but she doesn't really want to take responsibility for it and she went to rehab but you know um she has sex with with Ron Livingston and who kind of gets her out of it so so she hasn't taken responsibility for that and she Mm -hmm. hasn't she hasn't you know, been accountable for that. And then she goes and because of her addiction, someone dies and it's like, well, how else is she going to take responsibility?
1: Well, I mean, before she turns herself in, there is a montage of her no longer living with Natasha Leone. Yeah. She is now attending meetings and taking them seriously instead of just smart, you know, snarky remarks. Mm -hmm. She's sort of has to live on her own and sort of, she's working at a factory of some sort. I think, I think, I can't recall I I tried to look up or whatever. I think it's like a chicken factory like it's a shitty yeah. sort of factory job or whatever. I think I think all of those things are equally valid at t- at like just becoming a new person and like growing mm. as going to prison when the mo- when it's a movie that has already set up that you are you have hurt no one <laughs> through this death Not in the real world, but in the moral universe of this film where characters pop out of nowhere to say it's okay that you did what you did.
0: For sure. Um, I think that...
1: Like, to me, this is a a very, like... The imaginary here is very much, like, this is the moral universe of, like, two successful Hollywood people who are upper middle class who, (laughs) who, like... Yeah. And, like, their understanding of prison and their understanding of, like, what what uh, can result from it is is like somewhere deep inside we do believe that prison should exist and yeah I know this doesn't need to turn it, because I I know we both believe the same thing cuz I just mean like in the realm of this movie it was a like this is the ultimate catharsis is that
0: I mean I mean okay yeah even if it's like
1: is that you know she's sewing McDonald's uniforms for 5 cents uh, 5 cents an hour instead of working at a chicken factory and that makes her more Responsible in some way Like
0: And, and we, we don't know What her recovery process is like we, we don't know If she's doing the 12 steps We don't know What she's doing Right I, I um, but The implication my, Is
1: she's in a, a 12 step program
0: w- Right And and, and one, one of the steps To my understanding I'm not really an expert on it But my understanding Is that w- Like one of the steps Is like Is like You make amends Specifically for Like the things That you've done To other people And it's like She can't really Apologize to John Daly Because he's dead But you know That's like I, I think that's her way Of, of like making amends
1: I just I, I just I wonder if if that's the moral universe of the movie, why you then have Molly Shannon pop up at the very end and say, By the way, everything's better now
0: yeah she, she yeah she does do that um i I mm, yeah i mean I mean unless it's just supposed to be like it's it's funny because it's like. Molly Shannon being gleeful which is adorable and she's being gleeful for horrible reasons because she's like put her parents in a home and her brother's dead you
1: think think, so maybe it's like the other way around where it's like her
0: brother's out of her life she doesn't know that he's dead
1: where she sees how horrible Molly Shannon is being in that moment and so she's like oh that's Molly Shannon is as selfish as I have been being. I need to, she is I, I a counter think example. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, it's like, it seems like Molly Shannon and John Daly as siblings have a very similar dynamic where it's like, you know, John Daly's kind of you know, out having sex with whoever and Molly Shannon is taking care of the parents. So mm-hmm. it directly maps on to, uh, that's true. You know, uh, yeah. Judy Greer and Natasha Lyonne. And then she sees like, oh, Molly Shannon had this breaking point and now she's kind of snapped and like put her parents in a nursing home and she's glad that she's never going to see her brother again. So like, oh my God, is, is Natasha Lyonne going to end up like that? Am I putting her on this path? Because I'm acting as irresponsibly as John Daly did. Mm. Oh. I don't know.
1: It's a minor thing because it's ultimately a, yeah. a movie that works. I think the problem is more that it's just like you have an ambition here to not just be a raucous, like uh dirty, you know, grandpa kind of like right. level of just like a uh, rude comedy. Right. Like you have the ambition to actually be a, proper movie about people and their emotional lives and the arcs that they take on those uh, relationships yeah i
0: think for me the rude crass comedies work the best when the stakes are more immediate and uh when, what, when what's an example there for is you no accountability uh never going back
1: mm, yes
0: yes <laughs> Um, which is about two young women who I think like their high school dropouts, they're waitresses and in, in like like a like a shitty diner, and all they want to do is scrape together the money to go to Florida together. And and they're they're gal pals, and they are they're like two rabid possums, just like tearing shit up in in their shitty town. And there's just
1: absolute disdain for all forms of authority. Yeah,
0: yeah, one hundred percent. Everyone around them is a shit bag. They're shit bags. There's no accountability. there's there's no there's no thought of of anything past the next 24 hours and it- it's delightful. It's so much fun, and the
1: stakes there, I think, are along the lines of like we need this money because this thing got stolen. It's something along the lines of there was a theft of some drugs or whatever, so they have right. to go sell drugs, or they have to like
0: right. Yeah, I I don't I don't remember the specifics because I mean this movie just kind of popped. But up the, my but memory. the money
1: is so they can go on vacation. They
0: just want to go to Florida, and it's cute. Like like it's it's but also incredibly crass. But, but
1: also it's so the characters cute. are specifically written, and their relationship is important to the movie. Yeah. It's, it not like just stupid it's and and like tossed off
0: their their friendship is the is the core of the movie and and they are they're ride or die for each other but there's no sense of like healing or self-actualization or like am i on the right path like no they're just living for today yeah and and the movie never questions that The movie never critiques that it's just it is what it is it's so much fun i love that movie never
1: going back also on tubi
0: also on tubi
1: check that out never going back that's a fun one um, but overall, I will say, like, Addicted to Fresno is a movie that got, like, a lot of bad reviews on Letterboxd yeah. and was didn't get much critical notice. I mean, it's, like, 2015, so that's just right. the era when a small movie like this is just not going to yeah. be noticed in any no. way.
0: Did a dirty Letterboxd. It's yeah. not that bad. It was
1: a fun surprise. Yeah. And it was just an avenue for all sorts of really great performances two really yeah. great central performances. Yeah. But also, like, even towards the end of the movie... Uh, When they have the mock funeral for John Daly's character and they have their sort of like big falling out in the middle of this pet cemetery, Beth Grant is there, uh, who's this wackadoo woman who's burying her turtle. Right, right. Beth Grant. I mean, she's been in a hundred things, but like Donnie Darko is the one that always comes to mind for me where she says, sometimes I doubt your commitment to sparkle motion. Yeah. (laughs) Like but like even like Beth Grant shows up and I go, Oh, the wonders never cease. Here comes yeah, Beth Grant.
0: Yeah. Um, um
1: as a delivery system for that feeling that it makes it almost the ultimate Judy Greer movie because that's the Judy Greer experience. Yeah. But because you can't be surprised when Judy Greer is the is the lead. Instead right. you're just like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, very strong supporting cast. Um another actor who I was very pleased to see in this movie, Malcolm Barrett. Oh yes. Um who plays the uh the the porter uh not, not the porter he, he's, he's like a he's like the the bellhop in yeah. the hotel um he's delightful terry's the yeah, ten, ten. <laughs> yeah. He, he's a uh, he's he's the straight man in in the the prepping for terry's which is like the best key in peel sketch um he's, <laughs> better off ted yeah the... yeah better off ted um which is a show that i like again, again with sort of the the twee campy humor put malcolm barrett in more things that's, agreed that's my take away. i think malcolm barrett's
1: very good uh, you know the thing about malcolm barrett in this movie specifically mm-hmm. that i thought was impressive about this movie is a lot of these movies that are crass and are built around uh Sort of outrageous, inappropriate humor. Mm -hmm. They every character speaks the same way. Mm -hmm. Like if you watch like a Rob Zombie movie, those movies are so vulgar, and every single character, whether it's like a police sheriff or a teenage girl or a hardened criminal Uh or a trucker or everyone, they all speak the exact same. They're all like, "What the fuck you fucking thinking about, you fucking piece of shit!" And Uh but and then like in this movie, like there's a lot of that humor. But it's just because Judy Greer in most of the scenes. Yeah. It's not actually how everyone speaks. And right. like Malcolm Barrett pops up and he has a totally different energy from everyone yeah. else. And yeah. it's like, a part of it is you learn his secret. He's just like, well, I smoke before and after work and he's yeah. fine. <laughs> and it's like, he also hates Fresno, but instead of just like freaking out about it, he just writes bad poetry about it. Yeah. Which is like, that's yeah. a very healthy, like writing bad poetry is a very healthy way to deal with things.
0: Yeah, he's Greer, very it, charming.
1: His poetry, yeah. It, it does feel like uh, Twitter hashtag jokes more than it feels yeah, like poetry. Yeah, it
0: does. It does. Um... <laughs> But but yeah, it it is still like like a little like like breath of fresh air. Yeah, I, I mean you 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 just have so many strong character actors in this movie. Um, I mean I mean if, yeah, there there is gonna just be that variety of talent. I mean you have Kumail Nanjiani, um, you know who who just does his his thing and he's just sort of in his.
1: Kumail Nanjiani talking about Oprah is something oh I didn't God. know I needed until I like that. It's again, it's like Kumail Kumail's origin story. Even though it takes place in Fresno, is that he's from Chicago? Because like that to me is an essential part of the Kumail Nanjiani origin yeah, story.
0: Yeah. The, oh God, there's just something about him. Even when he is like, even when he Kumail Nanjiani is playing a character who is, uh, in a a like a like a sex addicts anonymous meeting talking about his rock bottom he just brings this smarminess <laughs> that i wait
1: till you hear my rock bottom
0: <laughs> <laughs> is the is the like the way
1: he talks about like you don't have as great of a rock bottom as mine because you weren't as high as me because yeah. i was i worked this for this close oprah, to oprah. oprah. yeah <laughs> Oh, oh man
0: yeah he oh my god i i never fail to crack up when, when he just has that little like self-satisfied kind of mark
1: paul gosler that's yeah. zach morris from saved by the yeah.
0: bell <laughs> oh my god he's so good um
1: another another portlandia uh name that got in this yeah, movie yeah yeah I didn't. I I, I was checking uh, the different specific episodes. Now the way TV writing works is that there's a writers room, but only one person gets credit per episode. Uh-huh. Um, so like, just because Carrie Dornetto gets uh, credited with certain episodes of television doesn't necessarily mean that those are like her sole Ray. creative output or whatever. But I was looking up which episodes of Community she did, and she did the uh, um, Goodfellas parody, the Chicken Fingers one, which is like. I think that's oh, that's a good that's one. Widely considered, like oh, that's the part where people sort of caught on, like oh, it's this kind of show. That was like yeah. an er, like a season one episode that yeah. was like sort of set the stage for what I would I would be very surprised. I would be very curious to see if she wrote any of those classic Kumail Nanjiani Portlandia sketches. Oh yeah, maybe because that to me is like. Kumail is very funny in a lot of things, like that smarmy uh, customer service uh, face that he does in Portlandia, yeah. specifically whether he's working for the bank, like the bank loan sketch, or that fucking waiter that he does. <laughs> Craig's guac talks. <laughs> oh man, that to me is the pinnacle of Kumail Nanjiani as a comedic force.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's a fun, it's a good movie. It did yeah. get to Fresno, especially, yeah. especially. Doing this podcast, you have to go into so many of these movies with low expectations. Yeah,
0: yeah, they're really all over the place.
1: Um, They're all over the place, but like they frequently don't utilize Judy Greer as well as this movie does. And like going into this movie and realizing not only is Judy Greer great, which I can usually count on, Mm -hmm. but like so many other people around her are great and that the movie is so well paced and that like, despite uh, it being a, a, a style of comedy that I can very easily find off-putting. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it does that pretty well too. Like I was, I, w- I was, I was very happily, I was very pleased with uh, *Addicted to Fresno*.
0: Also going in with kind of low expectations, especially based on the Letterbox scores. But I don't always agree with Letterbox, so. Yeah, it was a, it was definitely a, a pleasant surprise. You had fun watching it. Uh, just remember, if you're staying at a hotel or motel, tip the housekeeping staff. Those people work really hard. Yes. So now it is time for us to move on to the other segment uh, mm. where we come up with fun. And I'm saying that with air quotes, discussion questions. They
1: are fun. No air quote. I wasn't doing air quotes there. They are fun.
0: They're pretty fun. They're I, had pretty a, fun. I had a
1: pause after mine as well. And that I feel like that's the audio equivalent of air quotes. They're fun.
0: They're fine. They are fine. We haven't
1: done any air quotes in any, any of these. <laughs> you will all have fun at this next part. Don't turn it off yet. Don't turn off the. Don't turn off the podcast. Don't, don't, what? <laughs> You're driving. Keep your hands on the wheel.
0: <laughs> anyway, we have the most delightful time asking each other whimsical questions. Uh, related to Judy Greer, related to the movie that we just saw. Why don't you go first?
1: Sure. Now, this one is related to Judy Greer, not the movie we just saw.
0: But Uh given that this
1: is a movie uh, about character, like with a bunch of great bit parts and a bunch of great character actors in it, Um, including Natasha Leone, who we liked a lot. Yeah. So, so one of the bad things about having a podcast is that you get podcast brain poisoning and you start coming up with other concepts for other podcasts you could be doing because it's fun to have like a long-term project. Um, it's much more fun to have a long-term project than to do it. (laughs) And so it's, it's much more fun to come up with podcast ideas than actually do them. So I was like, if we were going to come up with another sister podcast to this, Uh where we covered the career of a. Uh, prolific character actor and mm-hmm. um, all of their films who would be a good choice uh, and so I thought this segment could be called premiere of a new Judy Greerless sphere of movie souvenirs I literally just looked up a rhyming dictionary and that's the title I came up with we're going to come up with uh, potential uh, other actors that we could do this style of podcast for you have a very angry face. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> Premiere of a new Judy Greer list sphere of movie souvenir. You have a much angrier face. <laughs> now, you you hate it more. I thought you'd come around to it.
0: Maybe, maybe third times the charm.
1: Premiere of a new Judy Greer.
0: <laughs> oh my god. Oh my,
1: I've never seen you so despondent. I feel like I have to stop this podcast and do a wellness check. <laughs>
0: I was listening intently. <laughs> Premier. I premiere
1: premiere of a new Judy Greerless sphere of movie souvenirs. Oh, you like it now. That, now it's fun.
0: I am I'm, I'm I just I'm just supporting you thank you. Because I care.
1: Thank you. <laughs> um, would you like to start?
0: I guess. <laughs> oh. <sighs> Moving forward. Moving forward, um, so my thought was initially um, because th- there's there's lots of character actors who I delight to see in in movies, um, but my thought was also you know we call this podcast ninety six Greers because uh, Judy Greer uh, churns them out. Bam, bam, bam. I mean, I mean, she makes a ton of movies. She's not at 96 yet, but as we've we've jokingly said before, that uh, by the time we get to episode 96, she will have made 96 movies. And uh, I mean, at the rate that she's going, it's completely likely that it would happen that I believe way. so, yeah. So I was thinking along the lines of uh, who would be an interesting actor to focus on just in terms of... Uh, Having a very prolific career, but also having a career spanning a long uh, chunk of film history, who I would choose to focus a sister podcast on would be Donald Sutherland
1: hey he
0: has made over 140 movies at this point he's still a working actor and his film career started in the late 60s so you have a real big range of time to work on um and he's gone from I think I think in the 70s he's more of this like thinking person sex symbol yes um he, you know he's he's very sexy in movies like uh, like invasion of the body snatchers mm-hmm. he's he's like Don't look now. Yeah. Don't look now is the other one where he's just this like, like, you know, intellectual seventies hunk. Um, you know, and, and those are also like very interesting movies to have like a like a, a sexy character in because they're both horror. Um, you know, he's uh, he's had uh, like a whole range of different genres that that he's worked in. Um, the same year that he was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is like sci-fi horror classic, he was also in Animal House. Um, he's worked with Fellini, yeah. Um, so you know, a lot of different roles, and and now that he's older, I mean, he he plays. Um, you know, more paternal characters. Um, he is uh, um Elizabeth Bennett's father in the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice adaptation, which is one of my favorite movies. Um and, and he also, uh, you know, is in, like, you know, Bigger Budget Fair. Um, he is the main villain in the Hunger Games series. Um, so really going all over the place from, you know, from Art House Fair to to big blockbusters, sci-fi comedy. He's
1: in one scene in Beer Fest He's that is in... absolutely hysterical. He is? Yes.
0: I didn't know that. He
1: he has, like, a video will that he has, like, a little weird puppet. And he drinks, like, five pints of beer during over the course of this video will. It's a very it's not a funny scene, but it is funny that it's Donald Sutherland doing the scene.
0: Yeah. That, that is a, that is a choice. That yeah. is definitely a choice. Um, yeah. So I, I think, I think his career would be interesting to look at because you would just really be running the gamut just in terms of, of film history and in terms of, of, you know, budget genre mm-hmm. really going all over Europe the place. and America, Europe and America. Yeah, exactly. A lot
1: of auteurs.
0: Exactly. Um, he doesn't really have a great name when it comes to rhyming. No. Uh, which m- makes it difficult for me to name things if I can't make a rhyme. So I'm just going to call it Podnold Southern Cast. Oh.
1: Now it's time for me to give you the most disapproving look I, I can muster. I
0: was desperate. Please, wow.
1: Please describe for everybody.
0: That... Oh, oh! I, I, How I'm I. looking at you right I, now. I can't because my heart has just turned to ice yeah. in my chest, and I really just need to sit in the corner and think about every decision I've ever made in my entire life. Uh, Maybe I'm the one who needs to go to jail to take accountability for my decisions. Off
1: the top of my head, you could have said, I don from a Sutherland down under.
0: Mm. All
1: right. Well, we're both, we're both trash. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I like yours specifically because it is a different stretch of time than Judy Greer. Like Donald Sutherland's still making movies, but when you mm-hmm. think about the heyday of Donald Sutherland, you are thinking about the seventies and eighties. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so that would that would be a more interesting uh, companion because mm-hmm. it's there's not a lot of overlap there.
0: One thing I will say about um, this podcast is that um, Judy Greer's career. Um, definitely falls within my comfort zone when it comes to discussing movies. I mean, I mean, late 90s to present day. Mm-hmm. Th- those are the films that have come out in my lifetime. For American-made movies, it's uh, it's like a time period in culture that I understand because I've lived it. Um, so I think if it was a Donald Sutherland podcast, a, a good chunk of that would be quite challenging for me to, to get out of my own lived experience and to think about, well, what would it be like to see this movie in the 70s and sure. the 60s and the sure. 80s?
1: Um, for me, I was trying to think about someone who is the literal sort of equivalent of Judy Greer. Whereas okay. Donald Sutherland is a, a mostly leading roles, I think, for most of his career. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I guess, not this sort of latter stage of his career. Once he became the paternal figure, he is more in the supporting. But a lot of his career is he is the lead of MASH. He is the lead of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Mm-hmm. He is the lead of... Um, so I was trying to think of who is someone who always pops up in a wide variety of very different kinds of movies, both highbrow and lowbrow, um, who is never the lead, but nonetheless, you're always glad to see them. Um, And so I thought Louise Guzman would be a good counterbalance to Judy Greer. I think one thing that we've sort of discovered uh, when you look at a lot of these roles of Judy Greer's is that like Judy Greer makes the most she judy greer does more with the script than is given to her mm-hmm. because often what is given to her is she's the mom or she's the wife mm-hmm. or she's the nag or she is like irri- irritating white woman like mm-hmm. some way and she's the person who comes in and makes them memorable mm-hmm. um and i think louise Guzman, a lot of his career especially early on was just like He is the Latino gangster. He is the Cholo. He's dealing drugs. Yeah. And he has an energy to him that he would take these extremely stereotypical roles and you instantly are like, no, 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 no. That's not a Latino. That's like, that's not just a, a Cholo who's selling drugs. That's Louis Guzman. Yeah. yeah, He has like a single scene in this really terrible Christopher Walken movie I watched recently called McBain, where the, it's like these Vietnam vets who all get together to rob a bunch of drug dealers so that they can like do a coup in South America. It's
0: called McBain?
1: It's called. It's literally called McBain. It's, and it's a serious it pre- movie? It predates The Simpsons, McBain, I believe. Okay. Okay. Uh It's 1990. <laughs> so like...
0: Speaking of The Simpsons, yeah. I'm sorry, I, I discovered when I was trying to make my decision for this that uh, Donald Sutherland played a character called Homer Simpson in a movie. Before? Yeah, in like the 70s. I love it. Um, Day of the Locust, I think it was called. Oh,
1: that we gotta watch that. That movie is... His
0: character's name is Homer Simpson. That
1: movie's fucking wild. We gotta watch Day of the Locust. <laughs> okay. Day of the Locust is... You remember the... You know the Damien chazelle movie that came out last year babylon it's oh, yeah, like uh-huh. oh man the roaring 20s like right, silent right. film era hollywood is right. fucking nuts Dave of the locust is like the original like out of control he, I he's homer sensitive that that's so funny yeah,
0: yeah
1: um so like louise guzman has a single scene in McBain where like he's a drug dealer who gets robbed and he just has a monologue that lays out the entire like corrupt world of like oh yeah, it's okay to deal drugs here and here. It's like, it's okay for pharmaceutical companies. It's not okay for me. Uh-huh. And it's just like it's this meatheaded, like total dumbass movie. And then like suddenly Luis Guzman shows up and is the most interesting thing in the entire movie. And then he's gone. But he's also like, he's the guy who gets cast in a bunch of early Soderbergh movies. He, he's also the guy who gets cast in a lot of Adam Sandler movies. Yeah. You know, he's he's someone who is in Magnolia, but mm-hmm. he's also in like a lot of Netflix out of sailor bullshit, mm-hmm. uh, and and I don't think he, I don't know if he ever had a lead role. I'm sure he at some point had a lead role, but there's no memorable ones that come to mind. I
0: can't think of anything. But
1: every time you see Louise Guzman, you go. Hey!
0: Yeah, it's oh, yeah. Guzman. I love when he shows up in movies. He's and, great.
1: But like, but he just because he can be in these like multi-million dollar blockbusters doesn't mean that he's not going to show up in like the direct-to-video sequel to Carlito's Way, where it's Carlito's daughter. <laughs> like, and that to me is the Judy Greer thing. It's like Judy Greer will be in a tiny no-budget movie yeah. just as much as she'll be in Ant-Man.
0: Yeah.
1: Um So I thought this podcast, because you need a musical. Title like ninety six right, careers. Right. I thought more Guzman than Guzman, because uh, I'm a white zombie fan.
0: Okay, that's good. I like that. I like that. And it's also
1: like even more Guzman coming in every yeah, week. You yeah. got a new episode. More Guzman than Guzman.
0: And no one's as Guzman as Guzman. No, no one, one. No one doesn't like him. No, no one. one can
1: be more Guzman than Guzman. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. He, he he just ha- he just has that energy and he has that look and it's just so singular.
1: Remember that part in Magnolia where he realizes that. The kids are all ringers and they're way smarter than he is. And he just sort of goes, What the fuck? (laughs) I don't know if he actually swears on TV, but there's just a definite moment where he gets really mad that he realizes he's on TV specifically to be made look ridiculous against these whiz kids in the uh, game show section of Magnolia. He is so funny in that movie.
0: I wish he and Paul Thomas Anderson did more work together. I think oh, he's just Paul in... Thomas
1: Anderson just went in a different direction. Yeah.
0: You couldn't have put him in licorice pizza? He could have
1: put him in. You're right. That, I was like, about to say, he could have been in inherent vice. He could have been an inherent vice. I mean, I'm not asking for Luis Guzman to show up as like some sort of Spanish duke in Phantom Threat or whatever. Yeah, no one's going to buy yeah, that.
0: No, no, but like, come on. He doesn't
1: have to be the king of Puerto Rico come in on. There Will Be Blood, but you could put him in. A, licorice pizza? A buy a mattress? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see Louis Guzman walk into frame. Everyone go, oh, it's Louis Guzman. And he goes, hey, it's a waterbed. And then it just cuts to an entirely different scene and we never see him again. Yeah. That's enough. That's yeah. all I need. We have another segment.
0: We do. We do. So we've watched Addicted to Fresno. Mm. Uh, we have fabulous Judy Greer. Some would say iconic. Yeah. Now, in an ideal world, Judy Greer would be in the upper echelons of celebrity and, and she would be a real cultural fixture. And sometimes when you're a cultural fixture, you get your own theme park. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I'm calling this Judy Wood. And my question is if in the best of all possible worlds, Judy Greer has her own theme park. What would be something in the park that would be addicted to Fresno themed?
1: So for me... I've, I, I recently listened to a podcast where they sort of laid out there's like two kinds of theme parks generally in uh-huh. America. And one is the Six Flags, which is we have these rides and these rides are proprietary Six Flags rides. And you go here to go to these specific roller coasters. And then the other one is Disney World, where it's like we are creating a guided experience where we're simulating worlds. And it's, uh-huh. it's about the theme. And no individual ride is really the attraction. It's the overall experience of traveling through spaces that is the thing. And I thought the Six Flags thing would be less interesting for this. So we're going to assume that the, that uh, Judy Wood... Um, by the way, there is a scene in this movie where their, where their boss, the executive maid, just got back from Dollywood. Right. So I
0: think that's probably why it was in my brain. But. So
1: um, that's, it's, it's, it's apropos. Um, so I feel like if you are doing a Judy Wood theme park that is a, a tour through the career of Judy Greer, mm-hmm. what you're really doing... Is your go? There's a lot of different worlds because Judy is so versatile. There's so many different kinds of movies. Mm-hmm. So like, there's rom-com world, and there you can ride the tunnel of someone else's love. Mm. Um, you know, there's indie world, mm-hmm. uh, which is not really its own section, but it's sort of scattered and dispersed throughout the park, in between other sections. You're just constantly seeing little. Uh, parts of the park, you're like, oh, oh, that's, <laughs> oh, that's right. Judy Greer was in that too. And some of it, sh- some of it looks really weird and shitty, and then some of it's secretly the most captivating parts of the park. Yeah. Um, this
0: bench is made out of balsa wood. Oh, it's part of Indie World. Yeah,
1: exactly. But but that but you never but none of it's labeled. You just sort of get to discover those things on your uh-huh. own and be like, the memory of my father, Jesus. Um, <laughs> you know, there's Horror World where there's a Carrie White dunk tank. I think that would be pretty oh. fun. Um, there's blockbuster world where you can ride a roller coaster called the War for the Dawn of the Planet of the Apes of the roller coaster. <laughs> um, but I think the real attraction of the Judy Greer theme park is edgy comedy world.
0: Okay, sure, sure. Um,
1: that's where you're gonna uh, do some archery. Um, that's you know. Really. <laughs> um, that's where you can go to the TV Ma Diner and get yourself a always sunny side up breakfast platter. Um, and, uh, afterwards you can have a arrested develop after dinner mint. Um, <sighs> this is the road that we chose to walk down when we named this podcast and all of these segments. No,
0: you're right. You're right. Uh, the, 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 minute we came up with judalization, that was the, the point of no return. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We fell from God's grace. <laughs> uh, here's the thing. Addicted to Fresno uh-huh. is too small and unknown to have its own attraction in Judy Greer land. Uh-huh. But if you lurk in the Judy Greer land subreddit, where all of the other Judy Greer adults uh, oh, like okay. to talk to each other about the ways they like to experience uh, Judy Wood, uh-huh. um, you will discover that every third Wednesday of the month is when all the sex addicts show up and try to ha- find little remote corners to have public sex in. Oh, and that is the addicted to Fresno Wednesdays.
0: Oh, okay. It's is, ju- it just it, becomes a it fuck like- fest. <laughs> For a month, one day a month. Is it like if you bring the Coke can, you get half off admission or whatever? If
1: you bring the condom that you cleaned out and hung over your shower, like John Daly in the film, then they kick you out. But you have to sneak in. You have to be, you have to be subtle about it. You know there's gay days at Disney World and stuff right, like that. Right, there's sex right, addict right. days at, at oh. Judy Wood. The thing about Judy Greer is uh-huh. that she has sex in... At this point, the movies we've covered, I'd say like
0: half of the movies. Let's see. Uh, She has sex in Good Boy. Yeah. She has sex in What Planet Are You From? Yeah. She has sex in In Memory of My Father. Yeah. She has sex in this one. So so um, that's four films. Uh, and this was the ninth. So about half. About half. Yeah. She, she has a lot of sex scenes. We have more sex scenes to come. Yes. Um,
1: or or you know in the case of something like adaptation she is an object of sexual desire in someone's yeah. fantasy if she not She
0: also wears like a slamming and cocktail dress in this where her cleavage looks really nice. She
1: looks beautiful <laughs> in this movie.
0: Not to be creepy but it's, no, 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 it's just no. an objective fact like 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 she looks smoking.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh I was I was more like damn Aubrey Plaza has fucking muscles. <laughs> Yeah. I did not realize yeah. that Aubrey Plaza was fucking ripped like that.
0: Yeah, She plays a Krav Maga instructor and she looks like a Krav Maga there's, instructor. There's a scene at
1: the end where Natasha Leone writes a uh, Judy Greer letter and says, uh, you know, I want you to be ripped like Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. Baby got back, literally her back. And I was like, yeah. Did you see Aubrey Plaza's back? <laughs> um, she's got that Linda Hamilton back. Anyway. uh uh sex addicts in uh, an amusement park okay. where ch- where children play because it's also where they go to do the well, uh, I
0: assuming that no children would be allowed man ride that day.
1: <laughs> it's kind of an unofficial thing so and they, and these fucking creeps they 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 want to get caught
0: <laughs> well that was um that was a very vivid and detailed and uh, well-fleshed-out uh, vision of a Judy Greer theme park. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you, Patrick. You're welcome. I said a refreshment stand with yogurt-filled dildos. And uh, that moves us on to our final <laughs> section <laughs> of the podcast. Yep. <laughs> Utilization. <laughs> Utilization, the the section of the podcast where we rank the films that we've seen, not in terms of box office, not in terms of artistic merit, uh, not even A to Z, but rather uh, from best to worst in how well they utilize the charisma, the talent, the grace, the skill of Monsignor Judith Greer. Right now, we have Good Boy at number one. And we go all the way down to number eight, which is In Memory of My Father. Um, based on what we were saying earlier, I, I think we're both in agreement that uh, Addicted to Fresno is in the upper echelons of, of judicialization. For sure. So the top three movies that we have right now is Good Boy at number one, The Wedding Planner at number two, and The Descendants at number three. So where where are you in terms of the top 3 do, do you do you see uh addicted to fresno knocking one of the one of those out do you see so
1: so i feel like you can fall into a trap where you like for example when academy award time rolls around sometimes best actor uh, academy award goes to most actor mm-hmm. you go to the person who gives the biggest performance mm-hmm. and i feel like we could possibly fall into a trap where the more Judy Greer is in a movie, the higher we say she is juliized. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing as Good Boy is where is the one movie in this list so far where she was the lead, and that's number one. Uh-huh. That said, I think this is number one. I put okay. this above Good Boy because I really think this shows how adept she is at comedy um and uh her skill as a as an actor. Um and I think she is really well cast, even against type. Uh I, I think I think part of what makes her a good actor is that she has really good chemistry with people. Like she she locks into rhythms with people very well and seeing her with Natasha Leone in this is is part of that. I would put this at number one. What about you?
0: You know, I was tempted to put this at number two because she is playing against type and I think Good Boy uh, plays to her strengths a little more in terms of the character. I can see that. Um, But... I agree with you. I think that uh, I think that Judy Greer is, in essence, what makes her so strong is that she's a team player. She is a, a a strong part of a strong cast, and that is like the 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 best things that she does. You know, it's it's not it's not virtuoso. It's not it's not a solo. She is part of a barbershop quartet of acting. Yes. And and, and she, she is the, the, the meaty baritone of that quartet. Yeah. Um, no one else used that metaphor. That one's mine and mine alone to use. I don't think anyone's <laughs>
1: rushing to use the phrase meaty baritone. <laughs> I don't think you have to worry about that. <laughs> I,
0: I, I, I know that it's disappointing <laughs> that I'm copywriting this, but I'm going to do it.
1: You're as bad as that dude who made my... Cloudgate who copyrighted the color blue. This
0: <laughs> is my meal ticket
1: <laughs> meaty baritone
0: meaty baritone go
1: to the 96 greer's merch store where <laughs> we're selling our meaty baritone t-shirts
0: if, if you give me 20 dollars a month on patreon i will leave you a voice message saying meaty baritone
1: let's start I'll, I'll be honest once you start leaving personal messages of you saying the phrase meaty baritone it seems more only fans yeah. than patreon
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's fair. I don't, I don't want to break any terms of service. Yeah. you're the OnlyFans. Anyway, um, all of this to say is that I I think the point that you bring up about her chemistry with Natasha Lyonne and and how um how she can really fit herself into the energy of the movie and understand and and really like vibe with the movie um and vibe with her castmates is what makes her um. Such a delight. So uh, I'm I'm gonna agree with you. We don't we don't have to we don't have to fish a coin out of the coin jar. We can put "Addicted to Fresno" right at number one with a bullet.
1: Excellent. Are you gonna add the bullet for real? Or are you Are no, you just saying that?
0: No, I'm just saying it. Okay. I'm. I'm it, this is just part part of my figures of speech. They're just flowing out of me like a like a a broken jar of ragu marinara sauce. <laughs>
1: And, and that also proved why you are the modern Mark Twain.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Broken jar of ragu marinara sauce. All right. Next
0: up on 96 Greers, we'll be talking about the 2002 Brain Scratcher adaptation. Hell yeah, we are. <laughs> directed by Charlie Kaufman, featuring uh, Nicolas Cage and Meryl Streep.
1: And Nicolas Cage.
0: And Nicolas Cage um Chris Cooper and Chris Cooper yeah this is a fun one this is one of those ones where uh I thought I was real smart for liking it in college so we'll see how I feel about it I, now. I feel the
1: exact same way yeah, where like have... you there was an age where you just have a knee jerk uh adoration for any art that yeah. acknowledges itself yeah because you go I'm I also oh see I, tropes. I, I
0: love meta I love I love meta stuff I, I, don't, I don't I don't even have like a like a smart way of saying it i loved meta stuff when i was in college yeah loved it oh how do i feel about it now we'll find out next time
1: mm, give me that <laughs> postmodernism. modernism <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, 96 Greers is part of the now playing network check out the other podcasts at now network.net follow us on mastodon at 96greers at laserdisc.party follow me on letterboxd at panda bear shape Uh, You can email us at 96greers at proton.me. Until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And and say goodbye to these.